One of the great things about <clears throat> singing that song before we preach is that uh, we've prayed. We, we've asked God to speak to us. We have said our hearts and minds will be open and we want to hear from you. And so with that posture and not only our physical presence but uh, with our hearts and minds, let me just um, remind us, those of us who've been here regularly, that we've been working through um, um, the core values of our congregation. We've been trying to figure out what it means to embrace God's vision. Um, and now we're going to move on to that vision itself and look at that a little bit differently than we have in the past. The, the vision that God has given us uh, for this church um, is to be God's source of shining light and living water in the western suburbs, drawing people to know Jesus, becoming like Jesus and serving as Jesus. And um, this morning we're going to focus on this whole idea of, of, of drawing people to know Jesus. One of our core values that we covered a couple weeks ago is this core value of attraction. And our ministry seeks to attract crowds of people, uh, not to admire our beautiful facility, um, not to appreciate uh, our great music ministry, um, not to be dazzled with the mental acuity of our preaching staff, not to be, well, that's obvious that so we don't want to do that. Not to be in awe of our burgeoning children's ministry. Those are all great things, but they're only tools. They're only tools. All of those things are a means to an end, and the end is that people would come to know Jesus Christ as their personal Lord and Savior. This is Jesus' wish. This is Jesus' desire for us. Um, and uh, it's great that, that, that John, the gospel writer, recorded one of the last prayers that Jesus prayed. And he prayed it on behalf of the church, on behalf of his people, on our behalf. And so I'm going to share that with you this morning as our scripture text. Um, Jesus had been teaching, and after he had said this, he looked toward heaven, and Jesus prayed. Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that your Son may glorify you. For you granted him authority over all people that he might give eternal life to all those you have given him. Now this is eternal life. Definition time. Pretty good source. This is eternal life. That they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Righteous Father, though the world does not know you, I know you, and they know that you have sent me. I have made you known to them, and will continue to make you known, in order that the love you have for me may be in them, and that I myself might be in them. In those last two verses, verses 25 and 26, the word know, or known, is used six different times. My sense is that Jesus wants us to know him and to make him known. This is a phrase that we've seen in a lot of places, right? You see it in a lot of churches. It, sometimes it's carved on the front of a wooden communion table. Sometimes it's on a stone in the front of the church. Sometimes it's outside on some kind of plaque. To know Christ and to make him known. The purpose of the church is to know Christ and to make him known. It's boiled down to that. It's just that simple. And it comes as an assignment and a prayer request that comes from Jesus himself, to know him and to make him known. And he says, this is eternal life. 
And eternal life is not just something that we're promised in the future. Eternal life is the best life we can have now. Jesus came, I came to give you life, and life in its most abundant form, in its fullest form. Meaning, purpose, everything that we're looking for in life comes in this relationship with Jesus, and then it's carried on to perfection in the future. Eternal life happens now. This is eternal life. To know Jesus Christ. To know Jesus Christ. And to make him known to the world. So that begs the question, does it not? You know, what do you know when you know somebody? If someone says, well, um, you know, do you know uh, Phil Sickingen? Oh, yeah, I know Phil Sickingen. But what do you know when you know Phil Sickingen? Some of you are kind of going right now, who's Phil Sickingen? I want to know him. <laughs> he has two of the cutest daughters in the world who kind of dress up his life right down here in front of him. You know, some of you think you know me. Well, if someone said, hey, uh, do you know Peter Simon? Oh, yeah, he's our lead pastor. Well, what else do you know about me? I mean, that's my position. I mean, you might know that I'm married, although Becky sometimes doesn't admit it. I've got three children. They're all grown, and they're out of the house. Doesn't mean they're off the payroll, but at least they're out of the house. Um, I'm somewhat educated. I have different pastorates. I like sports. I do different things. You know that about me. That's information. But what do you really know when you know somebody? You know, I, I, I write these weekly reflections on, it's a blog, whatever it is, that I just write them and somebody sends them out. So they post them everywhere, which is kind of a great thing. And some people have said, you know, I really like to read those reflections because I get to know a little bit more about who you are. And in those reflections, other than, you know, different than sermons, I write about the things I like, the things I think about, the things I observe. Um, the, the basis for those is a phrase I borrowed from Frederick Buechner, who's a Christian uh, uh, author, who's a pastor, who says, you know, listen to life, listen to life. You know, every day you see something, you experience something, something's going on, and God is in it. Are you listening to your life? It doesn't have to be rocket science, it doesn't have to be great theology, listen to your life. And so those are the things I, I write about, very important things, they're earth-changing, you know, they're, they, they could change the course of the universe. I mean, this week I wrote about the Cubs. They're changing the course of the universe, okay? In a hundred years, let's go. But what I wrote about the Cubs is, you know, do you know how loyal you have to be to be a Cubs fan your whole life? I mean, they'll test your loyalty and allegiances. Don't we wish we were that loyal to Jesus? No matter what, we hang in there with the Cubs, even when they make us throw up. But we hang in there with Jesus all the time. So you know a little bit more about me that way, but there, there are really very only few people who, who know me, who truly know me, who know the things that kind of make my heart beat a little bit faster. They know my hopes and my dreams and my fears and my insecurities and my hang-ups and how I spend my money, how I spend my time, what I think is important, what keeps me up at night, what do I worry about. Becky is one of those people. The guys in my small group and a few of my colleagues really know What do you know when you know someone? And what do you know when you know Jesus? I mean, when we think about knowing Jesus in our circles, in our Reformed background, we like to lean into what we think about Jesus and the information that we have about Jesus and theology and doctrine about Jesus. And those are all well and good things. And that's part of what it means to know somebody. And part of it is to understand, you know, who, who I am as a person. You need to know some information about me. But that doesn't mean you really know the person, right? 
When the Bible speaks about knowing someone and about knowing, it has very little to do with information. When you know someone in the Bible, it's related to your experience with that person. What did you encounter? How did you experience in them? Did they let you into their life? Did they give you something? Were they vulnerable? Knowledge always has a relational component that implies a level of intimacy. Knowledge is the word. To know is what happens when two people get married. You know one another and you become entwined in one another's life. The two become one. That's knowing someone. Now put this together in your mind. If Christ is the groom and we are the bride of Christ, to know him implies that same kind of intimacy. So the biggest crowd that Jesus ever attracted for a speech that he was giving was a time when we see him giving what we call the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5, Luke chapter 6. And people came to listen to a new rabbi. They were hoping to collect a little bit of new information about God. You know, new rabbis always do a big crowd. Maybe he got something new to say. Let's go hear him. We already heralded some people. Some people came to be healed. Some people came to hear what he had to say. And so they listened to the Sermon on the Mount. And Jesus turned their world upside down. He begins with things like, blessed are the poor. Now you can imagine, when those words came out of his mouth, everybody eased up on their seat a little bit and listened a little more closely. Ho, ho, blessed are the poor? The poor? Well, we're the poor. We don't feel blessed. How, how can the poor be blessed? Blessed are the hungry. The hungry are blessed. Are the, how can the hungry? Blessed are those who mourn, those who weep. They're, they're blessed. How are they blessed? You see, what Jesus was doing is he was turning their world upside down. The things that they traditionally thought would bring blessing were completely out of the picture. He, he changed everything. Blessed are you when men hate you and revile you. Isn't that one of your goals in life? For my name's sake, of course. Not just because you're a mean-spirited person, but when men hate you and revile you because of your faith in Jesus Christ. And then he goes, love your enemies. Love your enemies. Don't judge other people. Be productive. My disciples are going to be productive. They're not just going to know stuff. They're going to do stuff. The foundation of life, the rock upon which your faith is built, the solid rock, it's not just more information about Jesus. It's knowing Jesus and doing ministry. Those two things constitute a life that is built on the rock, knowing and doing. And so this crowd was getting more than information about Jesus. They were coming to know his priorities and his passion and his values, the things that he truly cared about, his perspective on the world and people and everything. They were coming to know the heart of God, the true heart of God. He was letting them know what it would mean to bear his image, to represent him in the world. The way that people would meet Jesus and to know him would be for them to meet his faithful followers, right? So a year or so ago we talked about following the rabbi and those who wanted to follow up. If you're a Christ follower, you follow so closely that the dust of the rabbi catches on your garments. You imitate everything that they do. So that when they meet you, they meet Jesus. That requires intimacy. I mean, we've been married for 42 years and I'm not very smart, but I learned some things like never speak for Becky. Oh, she'd be happy to do that. You know how many times I've died saying that? I'm like a cat. Nine lives. 
representing the image of Jesus Christ. For that to happen, the bad news is that our will has to be broken and our ego has to be destroyed. I mean, isn't that what the Apostle Paul meant when he wrote to the church at Galatia? It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. You shouldn't see anything of me or you or anyone else. Only Christ who lives in us. That's what you should see and hear. And when that kind of thing happens, the word my disappears from our vocabulary. My way, my likes, my desires, my preferences, my priorities, my way of seeing, my way of thinking, my way of feeling. All of that has to be gone because it's not us who live any longer. It's Christ who lives in us. And so my has to disappear from his vocabulary. There's always a little radar thing that goes off in my mind when I hear people use the word my too much, especially Christian leaders. Well, welcome to my church. This is my staff. They are my elders. Aren't I wonderful? I mean, you hear this a lot. I mean, I, I would, you know, I guess I, guess I learned that, that this is God's church. This is God's ministry. These are God's people who work here. It's God's, it's not mine. It's not ours. You have to die to yourself and let Christ live in you. And Paul knew exactly what he was writing about because he was at the top of his game as a Jewish leader. He was highly respected and highly feared at a very young age. He had graduated from the top of his class in seminary. He was the smartest man in the room when it came to Judaism and Jewish law. Everybody honored him. And he was on a mission. He was charismatic and he was powerful. It was to eliminate all Christians from the face of the earth. And he would stop at nothing to do so. He would execute people. He would exterminate you because you were a believer in Christ. And then one day he got knocked off his high horse. Literally. Blinded by the light of Jesus Christ. And when his sight was restored, it's a great metaphor that he saw everything differently. He had a new vision of life. Because it wasn't Paul living anymore, but it was Christ who lived in him. It was no longer Paul's agenda, but Christ's agenda. And so you see Paul in the book of Acts befriending the poor and the outcast and the marginalized, demonstrating compassion and forgiveness and mercy and grace. Maya is no longer a part of his vocabulary. He knew Christ and his only passion was to make Christ known. And when people saw Paul, they saw Jesus. That's why he could write these words to the church at Philippi. He could say, whatever were gains to me, all that stuff I had in the past, all the status and power and ego and people bowing down to me and being afraid of me, all that stuff to me is a loss. Or as some interpret, it's garbage for the sake of Jesus Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing work of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I want to know Christ. That's it. I, I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and participating in his sufferings, becoming like him in death, and so somehow attaining the resurrection from the dead. That, that's life transformation right there, ladies and gentlemen. If you say, I want to know Christ, oh yeah, I want to know Christ. Oh really? Do you want to know Christ enough to die and suffer like he did? I mean, I don't. That wouldn't be my first choice. But it's part of what it means to be the bride of Christ. 
And this is not an intellectual exercise. It's about a deep personal relationship. It's a matter of the heart the way Jesus describes it. John Eldridge and his co-author Brent Curtis write about our relationship with Jesus as a sacred romance. It's a sacred romance. In their book entitled Sacred Romance, pretty clever, they write this. Our lives, and when they say our lives, they're talking about their experience as Christian leaders, retreat uh, leaders, seminar leaders, and authors. Our lives have given us a unique look into the inner life of modern Christianity. And what we have known from our own stories has been confirmed again and again through hundreds of encounters with other believers. And this is what they discovered. Most Christians have lost the life of their heart. And with it, the romance with God. Most Christians have lost the life of their heart and with it their romance from God. And that's not even language that we use that often, right? Do you know Jesus? I, yeah, I know Jesus. Are you in love with Jesus? Do you know him? I mean, not just about him, but do you really know him? Are, are you intimate with Jesus? Is your relationship with him an experience of a sacred romance? Because you see, that's the only way that other people will come to know Jesus is through us. So, um, I don't know if you heard this or not, but the Pope visited the United States a couple weeks ago. Did you hear about that? The Pope visited the United States a, a couple of weeks ago, and Pope Francis is wildly popular around the world. He drew massive crowds everywhere he went. I read about um, one family who drove from Mexico to New York City just to be in the crowd so they could see the Pope drive by. That's commitment. Wildly popular. Someone said he's as pop more popular than Justin Bieber. I had to look that up. People stood in line for hours. So Pope Francis met with the president, he met with members of Congress, he met with other dignitaries, and he also met with the poor and the homeless and school children. He met with Catholics and Protestants and Jews and Muslims and agnostics and people who aren't religious at all. People are fascinated with the Pope like no other Pope before him and maybe no other religious leader. Billy Graham was pretty good, but he didn't drown crowds like the Pope. And I wrote about this last week in my reflection, and rather than trying to recreate it, I'll just share some of it with you. When asked about his popularity, people speak of the Pope's humility, his commonality, his vulnerability, and the fact that he seems like a real person who cares for everyone. This is a unique quality of a Christian leader in America today. He actually cares about people, and he's kind of common. I mean, this is ridiculous. I find all of this curious because it seems that his popularity is founded on a very simple principle. Are you ready for this? Imitating Jesus. The essence of Christianity is for us to reflect the image of Christ. Pope Francis is reflecting the humility of Jesus. The symbols of humility are rejecting some of the trappings that have more traditionally gone with being the Pope. He's chosen to live in a humble residence, to dress more humbly, to spend more time with common people, as well as with dignitaries. And you know that 
That sounds like Jesus to me. Much must wait of the Pope's altering the traditional movement of his motorcades to speak with people in the huge crowds that lined the streets. He blessed people. He kissed people. He hugged people. He drove the service, uh, Secret Service people absolutely nuts and crazy when he did it. And he asked people to pray for him. That sounds like Jesus to me. The Pope has expressed concern for the poor. He encouraged Congress to do unto others as you would have them do unto you. Now there's a brand new concept, at least in Congress. He offered compassion for those in prison. He expressed his concern for the sanctity of life of the unborn and those in the throes of death and even those who are on death row. And that sounds like Jesus to me. So this Pope attracts the hugest crowds that anybody else has ever attracted. And how did he do it? Not with encyclicals, not with more theology, not with more doctrine. He did it by being the image of Christ. People are dying to be in the presence of the image of Christ. And when you and I know Christ and become more and more like Christ, people are going to be drawn to Christ. Not to us. They're going to be drawn to Christ who lives in us. I mean, we can attract hundreds and thousands of people to this facility, but unless they meet and see Jesus in us, it's all been done in vain and emptiness. We're seeking to draw people to know Jesus and to know him and to make him known. And so there's really only one question. Do you know him? Do you know the King of Kings and do you know the Lord of Lords? Do you really, truly, in a biblical sense, do you know him? And I wasn't sure how to get that point across. And sometimes, well, most of the time, other people say things better than I do. And it's good for us to hear a different voice, a unique voice, say something. Because it sometimes sinks deeper into our soul. And so a few years ago, I heard a portion of a sermon by Dr. S.M. Lockridge who was the pastor of the Central Baptist Church in San Diego, California, from 1953 to 1993. And I did the math on that. That was 40 years. 40 years a pastor of one church, a nationally famous preacher. And in 1976, he preached a sermon in Detroit, Michigan, and they caught that sermon on tape. And I was able to listen to it an hour and six minutes. That sermon was, and never a dull woman. But they captured a portion of that sermon and put it to video and it begs the question, do you know him? Let's pay attention to Dr. Lockridge and the screens. The Bible says my king is a king of the Jews. He's a king of Israel. He's a king of righteousness. He's a king of the ages. He's a king of heaven. He's a king of glory. He's a king of kings. And he's the Lord of lords. That's my king. I wonder do you know him? My king is a sovereign king. No means of measure can define his limitless love. He's enduringly strong. He's entirely sincere. He's eternally steadfast. He's immortally graceful. He's imperially powerful. He's impartially merciful. Do you know him? He's the greatest phenomenon that has ever crossed the horizon of this world. He's God's son. He's a sinner's savior. He's 
the centerpiece of civilization. He's unparalleled. He's unprecedented. He is the loftiest idea in literature. He's the highest personality in philosophy. He's the fundamental doctrine of true theology. He's the only one qualified to be an all-sufficient savior. I wonder if you know him today. He supplies strength for the weak. He's available for the tempted and the tried. He sympathizes and he saves. He strengthens and sustains. He guards and he guides. He heals the sick. He cleans the lepers. He forgives sinners. He discharges debtors. He delivers the captives. He defends the feeble. He blesses the young. He serves the unfortunate. He regards the age. people were already standing to his hymn to Jesus and raising their hands. But it really does beg the question, right? I mean, okay, so I've cried twice already in the service. I always cry when Kimmy sings Wonderful, Merciful Savior, all right? It just brings tears to my eyes. And, I, and I, that's the second time I've seen that video today. It's probably the tenth time I've seen it in my life, and it just brings tears to my eyes to know and understand who Jesus is. And it's not me who lives, but Christ who lives in me. Do you know him? Because if we know him, we can make him known. Will you pray with me, please? God in heaven, we thank you for all your good gifts. Most importantly, for the King of kings and the Lord of lords, who defines love so differently than us, and who lived a life and died on our behalf. Our feeble attempts to say thank you fall way short of the kind of gratitude that you deserve. And yet this is what we have and this is who we are. And so receive our gratitude through our tithes and our offerings, through our service to you, 
as we seek more and more to live into and to reflect the image of Jesus Christ. And all God's people said, Amen. This is a, a time in our service where we um, reflect our gratitude for who God is and what he's done for us through our tithes and our offerings. And so I encourage you to be generous givers as God has been generous to us. Uh, I think uh, we're going to sing a couple of songs. The band will direct us. Let's continue to worship together. Let's sing this together. <laughs> 